Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, listeners. Today's episode is about our surrogacy. And we're talking about it from the point of view of a film made about a same-sex male couple and uh, a female friend surrogate, and there are issues around termination. So I just wanted to give you a content warning. Um, this is not a comprehensive episode about surrogacy with every angle covered. Uh, every angle won't be covered. This is very specific, and we're looking at it from the point of view of moral dilemmas. And we just thought it was very interesting. The film was very interesting. The The ideas in it were were very interesting for feminism. We would like to do another episode down the line that covers surrogacy more comprehensively. And so I just wanted to flag that up for you in case this was a sensitive area for anybody in terms of termination, disability, surrogacy, any of those issues. I hope you enjoy the podcast. I'm a feminist, but this morning when my husband and I went for coffee and only he had the mask, so he went in and got us the coffee. Then I went into the bathroom and the lady said, would you like to pay? And I'm like, what, he didn't pay? And she said, no. And I came out and I stood on the sidewalk and I shouted, have you no manners? <laughs> well, I'm a feminist, but yesterday I did laundry and I was so proud of myself. I said to Tom, wife points, which is something I say when I do something domestic. That's how gender flipped our relationship is, to be fair. I mean, on the upside, our relationship is pretty gender flipped in terms of the traditional binary. On the other side, I have been known to say wife points whenever I do anything that would anything 
that January Jones would do in Mad Men. Oh. I say wife points. Immediately um, makes it a very attractive thing. Well, exactly. I have a sort of fantasy. I'm a feminist, but I have a sort of fantasy about being January Jones in Mad Men with that wardrobe. But you like, what's his name too, don't you? Don Draper. Yeah. 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 But I mean, I want my heart broken by Don Draper. I want to. I want something else of mine broken by Don Draper. Thank you so much. Nice. My heart. Who cares about my heart? I see. I'm wondering what it is that you want broken. All I can think of is Hyman, and I think surely someone's already done that. No. Is that wrong? Moving right along. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm a feminist, but uh, someone said to me the other day, wouldn't it be great to be good at tech, like great, really good with computers? And I went, no, it would be terrible because then Tom wouldn't do it all for me. And then I would have twice the workload. I don't want to be good at it because if I'm good at it, I'm going to have to do it, even if I liked it. It's like that little girl who said to Lewis Carroll, I'm glad I don't like broccoli because then I'd have to eat it and I hate it. That's how I feel about computers. (laughs) Uh, Um, Do you have any more? I'm a feminist, but uh, last week when my niece called me and said that she was sad because Indian women have such flat asses and it's a point of our attractiveness, I said yes and. I'm a feminist, but asses have come in. All my life, bums have been, you know, it's all been Kate Moss and, you know, Jennifer Aniston. And finally, 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 bums have come in. And I believe that's because Jesus loves me. Mm. I believe finally, this is the thing that's going to make me believe in God again, is that hips and bums and thighs have become fashionable and women are paying for them now. Mm-hmm. Women are going and paying to do millions of squats to get bums like mine. Well, and they're just getting new bums put in, like the Kardashians, just just getting them in put in. Which we do not endorse here at the Guilty Feminist, by the way. We don't judge or endorse, but we also worry about the safety, especially of young women altering their bodies. And yet there's a little part of me that says I'm kind of happy that people are paying for what I've got. Isn't that terrible? I'm a terrible person, but that's why I do the I'm a feminist part to exfoliate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A little part of me that's like, yes, someone's finally paying to have my bum, not to have all their bums sucked out with liposuction. I think both of those things are extreme. I think, what do I think? Actually, I can't say any of the stuff I think. On this <laughs> You'll never have me back. So we'll just go to the next one. <clears throat> I'm a feminist, but when I got my second COVID jab, mm. I pretended to everyone in the house that my arm didn't work and I expected the door to be held open for me. And it worked. I was like, oh, and they'd be like, okay, okay, we got the door for like weeks. Excellent. That's Mm -hmm. a ruse. Mm -hmm. That is a fucking brilliant ruse. I wish I'd thought of that because I said to Tom, oh, no, my arm is absolutely fine. No, no, no. And I was like, no, last time I couldn't lift it and I felt rubbish. And I was like, I've had no symptoms. And actually, looking back, that's a big old wasted opportunity. Yeah. Ugh, time didn't, bed didn't, all day. didn't do the dishes, didn't do anything. To My be honest, Tom hurt. gets me breakfast every morning anyway. Every single morning of lockdown, Tom's got me breakfast in bed. But on the upside for him, it's what gets him up. We don't have children. So it's what gets him up is that I have to get up to do my personal training and my dance class. I wouldn't get up in the morning. We both got terrible. Like, we would just kind of lie in bed. I mean, we work very hard, but... It's difficult when you're in bed to get out of it, I find. So we would just end up staying up late doing our work. And uh, my exercise routine has saved us from this terrible choice of staying up late and getting up late. 
And if Tom didn't have to get up to make my breakfast, peanut butter on toast and a couple of black coffee and then set my Zoom up so that I can do my exercise with my personal trainer or my dance coach or whatever, he wouldn't get up. And that's what happened. I'll tell you, I'll tell you that week after Christmas, when I said, I'm not going to do my exercise, I'm just going to have a chill week. We both stayed up too late and we both slept in too late. And I was like, see, you getting me breakfast has saved you. It's really a selfish act. And he agreed. Probably I feel he like he doesn't talking. have a choice but to agree. Oh, no, he's, a, no, 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 no. You've misunderstood the Tom Selinski entirely. No, no, no. He is, we're very evenly matched, I think. But on that score, I have managed to convince him that him getting me breakfast in bed every morning is to his advantage, which it is, but it's probably not my place to say that. It's probably his place to say that. Does your husband get you breakfast in bed? No. What if you said, can you bring me a coffee in bed? I feel like he I, would. I feel like he I mean, If him. I asked him, he would, but we, I don't have that breakfast in bed vibe. I wake up, I do my practice, I do pulling with coconut oil, then I do my practice. I'm downstairs making my own ginger tea before anyone has even opened their eyes. By practice, do you mean meditation or yoga? Meditation. Meditation, yeah. Mm. I mean, if someone said to me, I'll get you breakfast in bed, I'll be like, do you hate me? So oh, wow. it's not the vibe for me, no. I... No. I just wish I was that kind of person who got up at five to meditate before everyone else got up and prepared myself ginger tea. But I feel like if that were going to happen, that would have happened by now. I've changed a lot. The fact that Mm. I get up to exercise with an appointment to exercise is itself extraordinary. The fact that after my exercise, I will then go and sit on the Peloton bike and do 20 or 30 minutes is extraordinary. I've changed enough. Peloton bike, that's incredible. I've I've changed enough. I don't need to be going to change. No, no, but my husband will get up to exercise. That's a big thing with him. He loves to work out. Oh, I don't it get does up to make exercise. you feel amazing. It makes you feel amazing. If you can do it, if you can do it, not everyone Yeah, can. I mean, I go for a walk later, but I don't do that. No, so we're not the breakfast in bed type. However, I have every confidence. If I said, honey, tomorrow morning, could you get me a cup of tea in bed? He'd be like, are you having a stroke? But then if I said, no, I'm not having a stroke, I'm fine. It's not, and this is actually me. He'd be like, okay, he, he would do it. Well, there you go. You've got the ideal man. I have, no, he's a good guy. He's a good guy. He's a good guy. He's, he's a, a, he's a guy. high quality guy. But you know, I've been married twenty three years, so I've had to, I've had to adjust my, adjust my definition of high quality. <laughs> he seems like a keeper. Yeah, a hundred percent. I'm and still you've keeping. Kept him. You've kept him, and I've you kept continue him, and to keep he, him. he tolerates me so well. You can't ask for more than that after twenty three years. Yeah. Quite honestly, I mean, toleration is, I think, a real result. Um, From a variety of bedrooms and kitchens via Zoom, The Spontaneity Shop presents The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis White, guest co-host Cindy V, and our very special guests, Jeremy Hirsch and Jasmine Batchelor, talking about a moral dilemma. Woo! This is The Guilty Feminist, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists and the hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. I'm Deborah Francis White, with me is Sindhu V, and we are talking about a moral dilemma. Have you had any moral dilemmas recently, Sindhu? Do you have oh, moral dilemmas God. in your life that you that you've so many, but I wouldn't necessarily use this moment to talk about them. Fair, um, but just... I I will say something general about a moral dilemma. There is never a right choice into perpetuity. You make a decision now. Mm-hmm. You can't know into perpetuity that that will always feel like the right decision. Mm. So you make a decision now. And then you commit to the faith that that is the right decision, no matter what 
and then you move forward because otherwise you just if you get to some forks in the road where you think I'm paralyzed. Yeah. Because they're both very difficult. And you got to commit to one, you got to have faith in your commitment. I got this as they say and then move forward. I think that's right. I think you've got to make the best decision for you at the time and then live in the knowledge that you made a decision for good reason. And if it all goes wrong, at least you made the best decision for you at the time. Yeah, I, and it wouldn't have gone right if you'd made another decision. Yeah. That's the point. Da, well, what that's you? the thing. Is we just ne- You never know what that parallel track would have been. You never know what could have no, happened. No, you never do. And hindsight is never twenty twenty. Foresight has to be twenty twenty. So have what's to hindsight believe- then? When you say hindsight's 2020, yes, when you look back, you say, I could have done this, I could have done that, but you couldn't have. You could have done the one thing that you did, and that's what brought you here. So when you're hindsight, you can have 2020, you're not blind. But I don't what know about that, because we live and learn? I mean, sometimes we do just live. No, but I think 2020 is the wrong message. It's like we, in hindsight, we know what the perfect thing would have been, but we don't. Because you're not the person looking back that you would have been if you had you made a different choice back then. Mm, that's true. You see what I mean? Yeah. That's a real back to the future way of looking at it, Cindy, when I like it. Well, the other thing is that at any given point in time, we think that we're in control of all the elements that are required to make a choice. But there's millions and millions of things we're not in control of that have already happened to bring us here. So we shouldn't stress that I can't control this and I can't control that. So you can only look at what feels right for you, Mm. commit to it, and move forward. Because I tell you something, the most wasteful emotion in life is guilt. Mm. It does nothing. Just See, I think a certain amount of guilt at times is the thing that propels us to behave better in the future or make amends. But shame, I think, is useless. Actually, let me take that back. Let's not say guilt, regret. Uh, regret, mm. yes. I think, but I think it get you know, that that can be what makes you learn. If I if I do something to someone and it hurts them and I feel guilty, I'm likely to make amends or I'm likely at least Correct. To, no, I take guilt to, back because guilt is a very important thing. Yeah, I, I think I'm going to act differently next time. But shame, shame is only luggage to me. It's like now the guilt has internalized and now it's not just that I feel bad about doing something mm. that perhaps hurts someone else. I feel like a, a useless person mm. because of that. And what's the point of me? And I'll never be any better. And those emotions, that shame is very counterproductive and it's bad and it's for corrosive. feminism. This is why we do I'm a Feminist Butts Hindu. Exfoliate anything where your actions and your values don't meet. If it's funny, it doesn't matter. It just let it go. Don't carry it around. Don't let it become shame because that's something you have to carry. Um, and if you do look at it and go, oh, well, I'm a feminist, but that's too far. That's not sort of, you know, oh, I should have watched that four-hour documentary on the suffragettes on BBC Four. But in fact, what I watched was five hours of... Uh, Real Housewives of New York. I love that show. Is that what you love? Oh my yeah. God, I love that show. A great example. And instead of that, I watched that. Well, what does that matter really? I mean, we're all imperfect, we're all human. And I do worry a bit about holding people accountable for... Sometimes now there's a trend on the internet to find out something someone famous did when they were 17 or 18. And say, well, they've not apologised for that. And I think, well, they might have, though. They might have, if they're not still doing it, if they've never done it again, they probably feel a lot of shame about it. And they might have apologised to the person in question. And we might not, they don't actually need to apologise to everybody um, for them to have apologised. Because we only know about that thing because they're famous and a journalist dug it up. There are things on everybody. Everyone's ashamed of things. 100%. 18. Mm. 
Hopefully. And sure, and should I think be. Also if, they're not, if you're not ashamed of anything you did when you were a young person, not even young, you know, something that if you're not ashamed of nothing in your life, you that, that's an unexamined life. Because there are going to be things you're ashamed of. There are going to be things you feel guilty about. There are going to be things where you go, I'll never do that again. I've learnt from that. And if you think, no, I've done nothing like that in my life, you've learnt nothing. I bet you anything you have done things because you're human and you've just refused to learn from them or haven't had the self-awareness. So I would suggest going to people and saying, you did this when you were 17, flagellate yourself is not actually very useful. No, it serves no purpose. And it, um, I mean, it in depends. fact, it distracts. If it was it a distracts. crime, if it's a crime, if it's Kavanaugh and it speaks to your character now and you are going into a position of influence and you refuse to admit that happened and it's it speaks to your character and you're likely to have replicated that behaviour and you're now going to be in a position of influence, absolutely, that's a crime. But if it's something where you go, that was something that was inadvisable or something that went out of hand. I also something that at the according to the morality of that time was not something at all that was considered not okay. And so you were sort of, listen, this is a very hairy thing to say, but there are things that now we know for sure we've, we've come to a place where we're like, we can't speak like that. But 50 years ago, my mother would have said things and she was not a horrible racist person who wanted to support this, that. It was literally, she was. People are a product of their environment, but they're not the pinnacle point of that environment. They're not the power point of that environment. Exactly. And if you're going to want people from the past to have never done anything wrong, or if they've done something wrong, to never be able to move past it, as you say, if it's not illegal, if they haven't done it again, then really what you're looking for is a fight. You're not looking for change. Because such people, if they haven't done it before and have, and are behaving much better, well, they've changed. And isn't that what we want? Because no one's perfect. You want change. That's you don't want perfection at any one given point of time. Uh, that's what I would think. I would think if they've never done it again, it demonstrates they learned from it and they changed. So I've asking changed. them to publicly flagellate themselves is such a strange thing to me. I mean, there were words we used on the playground, which I would now never use, and which I was probably using... You know, up until one day I was like, that's not good. Why would I do I, I examined it because it became part of my worldview to examine it. And I was like, no, you know, and then you do the things. Then you tell the kids not to say it. Then you, then you do what you can. If someone was to go back and watch something I'd said X number of years ago and say, oh, you use that word. And what then? What does that mean? Then you don't want to hear my comedy or you think I'm that person or honestly, what a waste of time for you, for us, for all the people that for the whole issue. And this is not in my defense. I think it's a defense of anyone who isn't the purpose of this podcast and the purpose of the things we read about self-examination and change. But if that's not allowed because you said something once then that's a We do want to live in a society with change and evolution and redemption. And I was thinking about this as I was writing this book. That and every, compassion. Every, every time we ask for progress, we ask for now to be problematic to future yeah. us. We ask for ourselves in the now to be problematic to future us. Mm. 
Hello, Guilty Feminists. We are coming to the South Bank to the really big Queen Elizabeth Hall on the 10th and 11th of September. These are going to be all singing, all dancing, not like the regular records, some Guilty Feminist favourites, some exciting big guests and some musical guests. So you're going to be getting quite a big, exciting show. Tickets are £27, but if you need a concession rate for any reason, including you've just had a tough year with COVID, um, you've been furloughed, you just can't afford it. Just click the concession price, which is 20 quid and change, and no questions will be asked. We trust you. If you need the concession rate, you need it. And that's absolutely fine. If you can afford 27 quid, please pay it just because it helps us pay for all our artists. And we've had a very tough year, of course, as well, because we haven't been able to sell tickets to shows. Um, But if you can't, 20 pounds is absolutely fine and we're thrilled. Uh, So please come along to that uh, book now. It's going to be so exciting. I think the tickets are going to be booked out soon. So book now or forever hold your peace. Uh, now we are coming to Australia and New Zealand. I'm so excited to be coming back. We will be in October and November in Wellington, Christchurch, Auckland, Sydney, Perth, Canberra, Adelaide, Melbourne and Brisbane. There's only one show in every city. So get your tickets now. Uh, we cannot wait to come and see you. We know that some people's tours have been disrupted by COVID, but we really are hoping by October, November, it's going to go smoothly. Get your tickets now. Worst case scenario, uh, we'll shift the date. But if you can't make the new date, you'd get your money back. So please, 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 please book. Don't miss out. Sending you all love and cannot wait genuinely to be back in a room with you, with us on stage and you there in the audience, just communing in the wonderful way that we have done before. Uh, Please get tickets because I really need to see you. (laughs) Sending love. Bye. Back to the podcast. Our guests today have both been involved in the new film, The Surrogate, due out on Friday. The film was written and directed by Jeremy Hirsch, a filmmaker based in New York City, whose short film Actresses was included on David Ehrlich's list of five Sundance shorts that knocked us out in Time Out New York. And it stars Jasmine Batchelor, whose television credits include New Amsterdam, The Good Fight and The Affair. And her theatre credits include projects at Manhattan Theatre Club, The Playwrights Realm and The Public Theatre, who also was an associate producer on the film. Please welcome Jeremy and Jasmine! Thank you so much. So firstly, there's a feminist reason why we're having, you know, we wouldn't normally just have someone on to talk about a a rant. It's not a random film. It's got deep and meaningful and really, oh, chewy, controversial, difficult feminist themes in this. And it's there's so many different ways of looking at it. It's such an amazing dilemma film. And I have to declare to the listeners that I was late for this recording because I could not stop watching it. And I thought, oh, well, I only get to watch an hour of it, but I'll get the idea. But in fact, I was too gripped to come and do the podcast because it is an extremely interesting film. So firstly, mega congratulations, Jeremy and Jasmine. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you. It's an yeah. honour to be here. Uh, secondly, I need to declare that we have a mutual friend who was in this film. One of my best friends in the world is Wesley Taylor. <gasps> Wesley. What? How did you meet? Initially. On Fire Island. And he took me to an underwear party. Uh, I mean, oh. a lifelong oh, friendship. We love him. Oh, he's one of the greats. 
October before last, but we've WhatsApped every day since. So we actually haven't known each other that long, but we're very close. And he worked in my writer's room and he's making a movie at the moment. So I just wanted to declare that. I was saying to Jasmine how honored I am to be sort of following the footsteps of Michelle Buteau, who's one of my favorite comedians. Mm. Yeah. Well, the thing is, when this movie came across, because we get a lot of, please, can you have us on the podcast? And when this came across, I was like, that's the film that Wesley is in. And I was like, I have to know more about this. Can you tell us about this film? Jeremy, you go first. Yeah, you're the creator. Uh, um, <laughs> I was hoping you would start. Um, yeah, it's, it's about um, a woman who's a surrogate and egg donor for her two best friends, a, a male couple. And it's about how, yeah, the, the relationship sort of is tested and changes during a short period early in the pregnancy after they receive a positive uh, test result for Down syndrome for the fetus. And what made you write this, Jeremy? Is this something personal to you? Is this something that just came to you? What made you want to create this film? I mean, the aspect of the queerness of the characters, that's personal to me. And certainly, you know, I've had in college around that time, various female friends of mine sort of drunkenly offer, like, one day if you ever want a surrogate, you know, so I, I would love to do it. And so, you know, I had this sort of idealized idea of it, but... I wanted to do a version of it, of telling us the story of, you know, the relationship between a a gay man and a straight woman in a more realistic way, because I think a lot of times it's over-idealized. And I wanted to look at, you know, misogyny in the gay male world in, in New York that I see. And something I've been talking about is how there are these different bills that were starting to get passed, and none were signed into a law yet, but in different states in America where they were saying that if a doctor performed an abortion or, you know, if any medical person performed an abortion and it was because of a positive test for Down syndrome, that was a felony. And one of these has actually passed in Ohio. So it's like taking this community of people who are fighting for something that I very much believe in, which is, you know, fighting against the dehumanization of disabled people. And it's using that as a wedge to limit access to abortion. And so it's like these two different communities that I feel passionate about, you know, fighting for were were being placed in as if they were in conflict. So I thought that was really interesting because it just seems like a complicated thing. Yeah, so I think that that inspired me. But yeah, I had to just research, you know, Down syndrome, that community. I had to research surrogacy, I had to research pregnancy. I was pretty ignorant at the time. So, you know, sort of the the journey that this character goes on of learning about this stuff in the film mirrors my own process of Of, research. Yeah. It is a really, really interesting clashing of liberal ideals and, and compassionate ideals and empathetic ideals. And it meets in this sort of moral maze, really. Jasmine, what drew you to this project? Because you are, can I say, Tom, my husband, he was watching it with me and he kept saying, she's so good. She's so (laughs) good. Oh my God. How how do I not know this actor? She's so good. And you really are remarkable in it. Um, Thank you. I know that you're, from your CV, you're an extremely successful actor, but I hope this role breaks you out into some kind of superstardom. Uh, What drew you to the role? Um, First off, thank you so much for those very kind words. I'm over here like, is she talking to me? Uh, Okay. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, So I love, would you call it a moral maze? 
I love that. Um, that is exactly what drew me to auditioning for this. Uh, is a moral maze. One of my one of my favorite films. Obviously, like a lot of other people, is Training Day, and I've always wanted to see what it would look like if a woman got to play that Denzel character, got to be someone who is complicated and flawed and messed up and charismatic and nice and you know uh, mercurial. You know, and this is one of the closest things that parts that I've gotten to do in that vein is to play a fully formed human being as like, we are all sitting with each other right now. We all have flaws. We all have like things we love and despise about ourselves, you know? And a lot of times when I'm reading scripts or um, just like going through potential auditions or whatever, a lot of the female characters that are written are like, Oh, Tom, how dare you? Like, are oh, you late again? We're like, oh, like, oh, girl, you better watch out. Like, you know, especially for like, <laughs> for like black women, it's like either I'm like snapping and doing all this or or I'm like very supportive, but I'm never a real fully formed human being. Not never, but rarely, you know. And so when you get a script that's like, oh, this 29 year old black woman is not only purposefully a black woman, but also flawed and annoying. And she pushes boundaries, but she loves her friends and she comes from this kind of family. Oh, and like this, this is something she really loves and she's not sure about this future. And you're just learning so much about her. That was revelatory to me. And I saw kind of a mirror to my life, you know, and what, what things I was learning about, like people pleasing and learning what it was like to have a fully loud voice in a room as a woman, you know. So to see that on paper, really made me excited. And um, I remember I auditioned for this in November of 2017. And I went home for Thanksgiving. And I told my mother, I was like, hey, uh, I just auditioned for this thing. And I think this is my movie. Like, I think this is wow. it. And if I, I was like, if I don't get it, like, I'm going to be sad, which I rarely am sad about not getting things because rejection is like, you know, 99% of what we do. Mm -hmm. um, but this one, if it hadn't worked out, I probably would have <laughs> had a little bit of a sob moment because it was so singular. And so like, you know, just like a mirror moment. It's like when you get into a good relationship, whether that be a friendship or romantic relationship or mentorship or whatever, it's a mirror. And I felt like, oh, wow, here's a relationship to put up a mirror to me and help me learn and not only be a better actor, but a better person, you know? Well, I have to say that really came through. Everything you're saying really came through. There's a complexity to the way that you're playing the character and how that character is at the beginning of the movie and how she's at the end of the movie. There's been such a massive shift, but she's the same person. But we, I mean, we really go with her and we really see it with her. So to just get into the sort of the crux of, of this dilemma that is presented, Jeremy, you unpacked it a little bit. But it's about a gay couple. I should, a male couple. You said that's better. That's better. That I, I haven't heard that before. People always say gay couple. But of course, why do we have to say that? A male couple. It's fewer um, syllables. It's yeah. Yeah. Um, it's about a male couple. And it really hits the ground running. And we were saying what we loved about this movie, there wasn't this huge setup of, oh, can we do this and deciding it? It was just hit the ground running. They have... Uh, with their best female friend, they've decided she could, which they clearly all decided as a group that she's going to surrogate for them. It's one of the men's biological child. It's going to be, they're both going to be the parents and this uh, friend is going to be the surrogate. 
And Sindhu, you said something interesting about this to me, that your response to Jasmine's character, Jess, uh, was what was your first response to the way that this character approached this? So I started watching this and I have, I, you know, I grew up in India where getting married and having a kid is just, it's just a done thing. It's like breathing if you're a woman. I always wanted to have kids. And in my 20s, I was very independent. So I lived abroad and I always knew I would have kids. I never really thought, uh, like you need someone to have the kid with. And of course, I'm going to marry some person that my mother picks or that I love or both. Maybe we pick, she picks someone I might love. Who knows? But it, they were like tangential for me when it came to me and my children. I had this thing from when I was young. I'll have kids. I'll have kids. And I used to think when I was 26 and I told my mother I wouldn't have an arranged marriage. And she said, well, what about the kids? And I remember saying, oh, I'll have IVF. Because for me, it was like, I'm going to have kids and I'm going to take care of these kids. So when I was watching the movie and I first, in the, I started laughing at the beginning because when she's like in the yoga class and the mom's like, that's amazing. She's like, yeah, people say that. <laughs> I'm not even sure why. I'm like, oh, geez. I'm like, here's someone who is not yet connected with their body, but their body is going to ultimately bite them in their ass through their heart. That's literally what I thought when I saw this. And I was like, okay. Now, I watched that and Jess, you were 29, or sorry, the character Jess is 29. I have a teenage daughter. I have three kids. I have a teenage daughter. She's, But I see young women like her with every opportunity. And I want her to exercise every opportunity. But I also want her to know that some things are sadly non-negotiable. And they tend to reside in your body as someone who can produce a child. Once that child starts getting cooked, some things become non-negotiable. And I'm not saying you can't fight with it, but it's going to be a fight. And at that point, everything up here but choice doesn't help. Suddenly you're like, wait, why is not everyone working at this? Because this is the most important thing. And I'm pointing to my stomach. So as I watched the, and I haven't watched all of it, I was really struck by the disconnect between what she thought was going to happen and what I thought was going to, what I knew was kind of maybe going to happen and everything went through. So I think it makes me sound really regressive and I, I don't, I don't think I'm regressive. I'm not regressive. Am I Deborah? No. Sometimes, but you know. Yeah, I know, but that's we, like, I'm, that's like, let's like manageable listen, regressive. we're both this, generation X and, you know, And I'm from India beings. and I don't give a shit. So I can be quite regressive. <laughs> I tell you that now, but I'll say this. I felt like there's so many things in this movie. I have friends who have children with Down syndrome. I have friends who've made decisions to terminate when they knew they were going to have a baby with DS. I have every kind of friend. But for me, the thing I was taking away was the relationship that this young woman was not having and then about to be having and then be having with the very basic nature thing of cooking a baby. Mm -hmm. That's literally, I just, for me, it was about that. And then there was all the other stuff, you know, mm -hmm. the male couple, race came up. And also I found it very interesting that she doesn't come from, you know, she comes from a very high achieving African-American family. So the mom is like, what? Grandpa and grandma did all this and you're going to do this. It's like when I quit my job, I used to be a banker and I had a baby and I quit my job because I missed the baby. And my mother didn't talk to me for six months. Mm. She said, you, you're going to be just a housewife after everything I went through. 
you're going to be just a housewife? And I was like, dude, that's my choice. And she was like, it is the world's most shit choice. I shit on you and I shit on your choice. Because for her, it was unbelievable. So the mom character in the movie, I was like, that's my mom. Who was like, I'm giving you not one penny for this shit. <laughs> so I really took it as a, at that level. That really struck mm. me. And I haven't got to the end. But all the other stuff was important. But for me, it was this kind of basic childbearing person and body mm. and the person that you're cooking. Thank you for saying that. Cause no one, no one has, uh, I mean, I, I've loved all the interviews we've done. Um, thankfully, you know, <laughs> thankfully mm. I've enjoyed them, but no one is really the first thing that they think is not like what this woman's relationship is with her own body, because that's such a huge part of it. It's such a huge part of it. Do you know, as yeah. I mean, you know, you just said it. So like the ignorance into the learning is such a huge journey. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that, because I was very independent in my 20s and I thought I can have a baby by myself. It was like, I'm going to have the baby that I'm leading it. And then the baby has you, basically. You're like, <laughs> wow. And your mind, can I tell you, like, it gives you such an insight into your, into your partner. Mm. And that, you know, you're like, why the hell did I ever pick you? Or, oh my God, you're so amazing. It's like, which way is it? You don't know. The baby's having you the whole time. <laughs> and so I found that very interesting. And of course, I'm dying to see what happens at the end. But there were a lot of points where I was like, oh, man. In that yoga class, I was like, oh, God, this is good. What is happening here? But we should also say there are some women who surrogate multiple times and love being pregnant love and it. love that feeling of, you know, being able to give somebody who cannot biologically have a child. I am such a woman. I tried to have babies. I did IUI. I did IVF with my biological sister who I'd just found, who started throwing free eggs at me very generously, I thought, because I'd literally met her the day before sort of thing. What's a few eggs between sisters? That's love. It was really lovely. It was really lovely because she said, well, then the baby would be biologically, you know, related to you. And I'd always thought because I was adopted, I'd never seen it. I'd never seen anyone biologically related to me. And I was raised very happily in my family. And uh, but I'd never seen a picture of anyone related to me. And then I was trying to have a child. And I think it made me want to know where have I come from, found my biological family. But I always had thought previously, if I had a baby, that's the first time I'd ever see anyone related to me biologically, genetically, I would hold that baby. And that baby and I would be connected in a way that I wasn't connected to anyone else I knew in the whole world. And it's not how it worked out. But actually, what did work out is I did say to my sister, I wrote my sister a card as she got back on the plane to New Zealand and said, like we took on biology and lost, but in another way, we won because this has made us sisters because it really did, you know, Mm. like we were injecting ourselves, shooting up, you know, and stirrups, every every orifice is penetrated. I mean, every single, there's something going into every orifice when you're doing that kind of thing. And I, you know, I'm, obviously happy about the outcome. I don't have children and I'm obviously very fine with that. And, you know, I've got a lot of other stuff and I, I, I came to the conclusion that I wanted other stuff more. But it's interesting to me that some people can just have a baby. And sometimes, like I have uh, friends who are a male couple and they had an egg from one woman and they implanted it inside another woman. And I think they did that deliberately so that when the surrogate gave birth, she was giving birth not to her own biological child, which I think mm. must be more difficult, for again, for some yeah. women. But what's interesting about this is 
I think Jess would be very happy to give this baby to these loving fathers, these loving parents. But she starts to question whether they should have any baby if they're going to want some kind of how she perceives it when the doctor tells her this fetus is going to turn into a baby with Down syndrome. When the doctor says that, they go, oh, no, no, no. And she perceives it as you want this designer baby. You want this beautiful little, you know, making this, you know, your 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 flats, you know, your apartment's got beautiful designer uh, furniture. You've got fancy jobs. You've got designer clothes. And you want this perfect baby. And she says that, she sort of throws that to them in an argument. You You want the baby to be perfect. And one of the fathers, potential fathers, says, no, not perfect, normal. And can you talk about that moment a little bit, Jeremy and Jasmine? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that even kind of, you know, going back sort of further in the relationship and further in Jess's journey, I do think that there's a seed of her being unhappy um, and unhappy with sort of this, you know, very white, hyper-sanitized version of like what certain parts of Brooklyn are now. And she's not letting herself even feel that. Um, <laughs> and then, so, and then it's like, once stuff starts coming up, all everything comes up. So I think that there's a lot that has to do with just, you know, friends that are friends, basically, I mean, they're from college, but it's almost like childhood in a way. And now, you know, they're at this different stage of life. But yeah, I, I mean, and there there is this whole issue of class when it comes to surrogacy um, in America, where the, I, I sort of like to say like the surrogacy industrial complex, and it's not, the, I think it's, it's a great thing. And certainly, I mean, kind of not to ramble, but going back to, you know, what you were saying earlier, like there's surrogates that I've met during this research process, one of which I've become pretty good friends with who say all that stuff about like, you know, it's never been my baby. I'm not giving it up. I'm just kind of borrowing it for the pregnancy and they mean it. And it's this beautiful thing. And, you know, people will say to me like, oh, surrogacy is becoming more common now. And it, the reality is it's becoming more common amongst the 1%. Because if you're doing it sort of what's considered like the right way, and I'm, for, I, I'm, I'm doing uh, air quotes. quotes in my life. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you're paying an agency, you're paying for lawyers, and you're paying the surrogate, which obviously, I mean, I support that 100%. I think that's essential and great. But the agency is sort of giving you this sense of security of that, like, everything's going to be fine. And, you know, when it's all said and done, um, including the IVF, it's like over $100,000 on average. So I wanted to bring in the element of, of class into this uh, for sure. Does that answer your question at all? Or was that just... Well, I, I, it yeah. does. But I want to I now continue it to Jasmine say, what was your character feeling when, oh, yeah. when her best friend who was also the biological father of the potential baby, the fetus, mm -hmm. said, I'm not saying I want a perfect child, I want a normal child. How did that, yeah. how did that make your character feel? Well, in that, that actually is a scene that was used for, I believe, the audition. So like, <laughs> I had a lot of time to sit with that one. Um, and I think it's in the preview as well, which, you know, seeing it felt very different as an audience member. But in that moment, I think, you know, in the journey, I think Jess is like, yeah, I would be super happy to give this baby to you. This is my present to you. This is my like contribution mm -hmm. for our friendship. Yeah, let's just do it. Like this won't be that hard. You know, that's her like Phoebe mind, from you know? Friends. That's her yeah, that's her young mind being like, Yeah, anything is possible. With love, anything is possible, right? 
But she fails to understand in this circumstance that like, although with love, a lot of things are possible, you need to also have boundaries. Um, so that's why in a lot of these, uh, you know, in, in a lot of like surrogate families that actually work out because I, one of my dear friends like had, they had twins, you know, it's a male couple and they had twins um, and they, you know, had a surrogate that was a dear friend. So like, you know, the children are also hers. And that worked out so well, but they also had rules where Jess, Aaron, and Josh don't really have a lot of those essential rules. You know, if you remember, she's at the brunch table with her mom and her sister, and her mom is like, you know, being a little uh, common sense about it and is asking real questions. And she's like, no, 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 it's fine. I haven't had this. I haven't. I'm good. Like, we're doing it. You know, we're by the book or whatever. But she can't actually answer any, like, concrete, like, oh, have we had the conversation about what happens if this test comes back this way? Have we had the conversation about if I change my mind, uh, how many times are we going to try and do this? Do I, as a person, have the resilience that it takes to do this? Because it takes, I mean, it takes a lot of strength just to have a child. Like I'm in awe of all the mothers in my life, you know, because that is to even attempt, you know, I, that's, that's so much. And so has she really asked herself, do I have what it takes to be a part of this surrogacy? And so that's something that I think like she learns is that she didn't ask the right questions. And she assumed because the friendship was so like, you know, storied and long that anything that could happen, they could, you know, get through. But as those of us who have like deep friendships and relationships know, communication is always key, right? So because there was very little communication about some of the things that really mattered, you know, thankfully for our film, that's where the conflict comes in. Um, but in real life, you'd be like, hey, can we talk about this? <laughs> can we have like a real well, conversation? Well, maybe not sometimes. Maybe yeah. not. You know? But I mean. And, and I think that's why the movie yeah. is so gripping because you're like, mm. I can see this happening. And then yeah. coming home and being like, yeah, maybe I should have said something. Maybe maybe tomorrow. Or let mm. me eat a cupcake or some way to just not. Yeah. Well, that's an you know, focus conversation on to have. Yeah. And yeah. I just want to ask one thing. I don't know when you were writing it, Jeremy, if you had this in the forefront of your mind. But, you know, there's. There's such a beauty and compassion and wonderfulness that we have in society, in most societies, in free societies, you know, liberal societies, where you can choose relationships. You know, we're at a place in society, more or less, in the United States, in the UK, in Europe, you know, these kind of societies where we're such good friends. I'll have a baby for you. We don't need a family and a husband, wife and a setup. You know, we'll do it because... We're so complicated in our allegiances. We don't all keep to the same family. Some of us are like, if I never see my family again, it's too soon. But I have this family. And also we have so much choice that, you know, there's no shame and moral obligation to have a child or you can't have a child out of wedlock. That's great. And we move across countries and different cities. We're not even near our family anymore. People used to exactly. grow up in the same village and the whole, exactly. fam the whole family would look after all the babies. Exactly. And now we're and on the other side of the world. It's so amazing that, you know, we have that and we can exercise those choices. However, at the center of this movie, those choices are trying to get there. We're trying to wrap our head around those complicated, new, avant-garde in some ways. And for a good reason, I mean that in a good way, relationships wrap their head around something very basic, which is the person producing the baby tends to have a bond to protect that baby that will literally, 
make you run faster. Like they've done experiments on women who are having a kid. These women will just squat down and have the kid and then run the kid if they have to, to save the kid. Like your body just changes, your mind changes, you know? And that bond is so basic and singular. Then we have all these other relationships and we're like, let's fit these around this. And then the person producing the baby is like, actually, I'm hearing something here. And I think it's so interesting how... For millennia, we have fitted women and babies into a particular kind of family structure. We have fitted them there. They have been told by religious people, by literature, this is how you belong. This is, you have the one guy, the child, the blah, blah, blah. And now what we're saying is we're turning it on its head. We're saying you have all this other love and you still can reproduce. You know, where are we going to go with it? And I think this is a real moment for women to be like, huh, I know what I want to do, but I don't necessarily want to do it in that structure. Oh, I've got a couple of friends post-lockdown who are just going, it's time. I'm doing it on my own. And they're going and they're getting sperm. And they're going, yeah, I'm not waiting around. A year and a half of, you know, less now in my before I die. You know, we're all a year and a half closer to death. No other way of looking at it since this pandemic yes, thanks, began. Deborah. Thanks, um, <laughs> You know, and that year and a half might be a crucial biological year and a half. Don't mean to scare you. Uh, I'm just saying, I think it's so interesting what you're saying. And, you know, mm -hmm. Deborah, is that now people, but how do we fit all those ideas together? Because when you, in, in that kitchen scene, Jess feels so othered and alone within a moment. Mm -hmm. It just goes like this. Yes. And you think, oh, a moment ago, these were three people. And they were doing, and now she's on this side and they're on this side. Like, why are you not understanding what we're saying? And it's that me versus you. And you think, ah, oh, Like you could understand it if it was a one-on-one -on -one marriage could just get divorced. But here it's like, ah, what is she going to do? I thought that was very interesting. Did you have that in your mind when you were writing it? Yeah. I mean, I think that a huge thing is like, you know, we're the first generation of queer people that have a, like a lot of the same privileges as, you know, straight people. But along with that comes a lot of you know, complicated, difficult stuff. Like the conflict that they're discussing through in the film is the same that a quote-unquote traditional straight couple might have. And I honestly, I don't think the queerness is what complicates it. No. It, it is, it's the fact it's the that friendship. it's the love. The it's that love people, thing. And then it's she's the like outnumbered people. by mm. dudes. Oh no, the um, queerness thing was not the thing on my mind at all. It's not the queerness. Oh, sure, it's sure. the, if, if they'd been a straight couple who needing a surrogate, it would have been the same. But But there was something about, to me, it was more about the friendship, that they're my mm. best friends. Whereas if yeah. you're being the surrogate for, you know, you've answered an ad in a newspaper or something because you need the money, it's different. This is what I thought about that moment because I thought it was the most powerful moment in the whole film was when the biological father of the fetus, if it's okay to say father of fetus, I think so, says, no, not perfect normal. She looked at him as if to say, I didn't know you were that person who would call Somebody with somebody yeah. with a disability, not mm. normal, but that's how you see the world. And I've been my, mm -hmm. I've been friends with you for all these years, and I did not know that's how you see the world. And what I wanted her to say to him was, you know, there are people in the United States of America who, if they could test for gayness, would make that decision to terminate. And we know that that is true. And so, how long have you been normal? You're normal in Brooklyn in the 21st century. But your normality, normality is always uh, defined by the dominant group, the dominant homogenized group. So non-disabled people, they're the ones who define 
disability as abnormal. And queerness has been abnormal because it has been defined against the dominant group of straightness. And I wanted her to say that to him so much, so much that I feel like I want to ring that actor up and go, by the way. <laughs> and actually say it to him, sure. Yeah, I'm sure he does not. He would never say that. I'll give you this. his number. <laughs> well, can, can I? Can I? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Well, can I can I read a quote from this? Is, there, there's this um, activist and journalist named Imani Barbarin, who I love on Twitter and and uh, Instagram. This is something that I think she recently hit the nail on the head in terms of what I was hoping to convey. And this also has to do with kind of like you know that thing where people will be like, you can be friends with people who have different politics from you or whatever. Like, and it's like, well, mm. sometimes mm. you know. So, okay, so she says, there's a lot of white people of socially marginalized identities Mm -hmm. that are not fighting for equality. They're fighting to exercise the fullness of their white privilege. Mm. So I think he's coming from a place of, he was told, oh, you can do anything straight people can. And, you know, he was coming to that with a place of entitlement. Yeah, Well, yeah, and I mean, he does make that point. He's like, you know, we've made do with crumbs for so long. And I have to say that I, I think that point, Deborah, that you made where Jess realizes, like, who are you? How can you say that? Uh, but my question at that point was that if Jess hadn't been pregnant with a baby with DS, would her response to a third party about DS be like that? I never got to know that because she's pregnant from the beginning. Do you see what I mean? Like, if she had just been a one of those, like they described her in the beginning, oh, she likes emotionally unavailable guys. I'm like, are you, sorry, you're talking about what? That's, who likes emotionally available guys? Who is, whatever, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, anyway. not if there's an emotionally unavailable guy on option. Of course not. No, <laughs> I mean, where's the fun in that? How will you, what other excuse do you have to eat your body with an ice cream? Anyway, moving along. 
what I was thinking was, you know, she has all these opinions, which I think are very great, but she presents them to her people who are her friends, like from an elevated position of human understanding. And I think maybe she was always like that. Or maybe if she wasn't pregnant with a baby that had a DS, um, you know, test positive, would she have been like the same way? Because they're outsiders still. And she's an insider now with this experience. And I'm not saying that I know the answer to that. I'm just saying it crossed my mind because these are huge issues. I mean, I have to I have to hand it to you, Jeremy. You did not take one or two issues. You're like, hmm, let me take about five or six really deep things and just layer them in so there's no getting out. There's no way you can get out of this thing. You're just like, fuck, I got to deal with all of this. And I think it's worked so well, but it's like the competition between the need to be seen and heard. Mm-hmm. whether you're a gay couple or your race or your gender, all of these marginalized groups, they want to be seen and they want to be heard. And we have a competition and parents of kids with DS, parents that chose not to have the kids with DS. People with Down syndrome. People with know. Down syndrome, people with disabilities. These are hugely competing claims. And that the movie shows they're competing. But one person part. can have any number of those identities. So one of the fathers, the potential fathers, is black and gay and so he you can see him being torn between his best friend who is black and surrogating for them and his husband who is white and throwing around terms like normal but it's also very vulnerable in his own way i mean i felt he was so much more upset in the beginning she's like are you okay you're in the shower i'm like dude you are having the baby what is going on in this show what is happening and he's like oh i can't handle it i'm like oh my god Someone please hit me with a brick. I can't take it. I was getting so emotional about that. <laughs> well, and I think like you, you, were, you reminded me, Sindhu, about the thing that I was saying at the beginning about the law against terminating oh. fetus after the Down syndrome diagnosis. It's a great example of, I think, the group of people that are in power, you know, misogynist uh, white men, um, sort of finding this way to pit two marginalized groups against each other. And that exact dilemma around you don't want women not to have the right to choose to terminate for any reason, but also Jess, Jasmine's character argues this is eugenics. What else are we going to start testing for? Why are you trying to eradicate the world of people with Down syndrome who are many, you know, Down syndrome people are very fulfilled and very happy and some aren't, and some people who don't have Down syndrome are fulfilled and happy and some aren't. It's such an interesting moral place because ultimately in this case, she's not the parent of the potential baby, but she's carrying the fetus. And so there's one remove. And so it puts that question under the magnifying glass much more. Is there anything else, Jasmine, that you'd like us to know about this film or you'd like the listeners of The Guilty Feminist to take away or you think that would motivate them to see the film? Um, I would like to speak specifically to like women of color. I think that the film has something very interesting to say about our relationship to uh, whiteness and our relationship to being quote unquote useful and like pleasing the uh, white patriarchy in a way. I think that there's some very, very interesting exchanges about that. And I won't say too much more about how and why they are interesting, but I do think that it's something that I found when I watched it back, you know. Um, I was like, oh, God, I felt cringe and anger in moments and also like, you know, had laugh out loud moments, 
And I was also super weird to watch myself on film. Um, I was just going to say, you're a real actress because I'd have just been looking at my hair no, and my jawline. I wouldn't have been oh. seeing any moments. I would have just been like, is that what I really look like? Oh, Should I? Oh, yeah. For, um, yeah, there do- are some scenes where I'm like, oh, no, I shouldn't have. Why didn't they tell me to fix that? You know, but like, <laughs> you know, that's like normal. But but I but I remember watching it and I've only watched it twice. Um, One time because I watched it just, you know, with friends. And the other time I had to watch it to get clips for, you know, a ceremony. But I remember thinking like, wow, this is actually a really great commentary on, you know, what I believe, I believe this is Zora Neale Hurston, or am I getting this wrong? Because um, I I don't want to mess up my um, female heroes on this one, but like that the black woman is the mule of the world, do you know? And so I was like, oh, wow, we're really making commentary on that in a way that when I filmed this, Maybe I had in the back of my mind, but when I was playing Jess, I was in her shoes, in her life. So I didn't understand how it was kind of insidious, that theme and that kind of like, you know, understanding and mirror up to like, okay, well, who is this woman in this in the situation or what role is she playing or what role is she willingly playing? And then what role is she being forced to play? Um, and then when, when does she make the choice not to do so? So yeah, I mean that that was something that uh if I were to seek out a film right now, I would be like, "Oh, I want to see what you have to say about that." Um because I rarely see anything about that, you know. I rarely see that kind of material. So the, the in this case, it's not just emotional labor the black woman's taking on. She's literally carrying literally, uh, and she's not yeah. being paid. That's made explicit. She's doing it as a friend. Yeah. And it's really really interesting. I found myself I know it's a moral dilemma film, but I did find myself rooting for Jess. Oh, yeah. And, and I, <laughs> yeah, when they came into arguments, there were times when I kind of thought, oh, I wouldn't have the courage to stand up to my best friends in the same way. And I would case it in nicer language. But she does try that. And yeah. she does try that. I, I really did find myself rooting for her. And I just think you did a magnificent job at what's a very, very difficult, yeah, it was a difficult role to get Thank right you. and to remain. No, I don't want to say that. It doesn't remain likable. What does that? What does that mean? I don't know. It's just that women always have to be likable. But I felt like oh, you was exactly. you were sympathetic. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I totally didn't talk like you. No, no, I didn't that's, like you in the beginning at all. So that's I you. did. I was I like, let's have this discussion out. <laughs> no, but I was Cinder, like, as we've discussed, is very regressive. I am very, no, no, but that's not regressive because I was I'm like, kidding, dude, where? No, I know. I was like, wait, you went to Colombia. You don't think this baby is going to have an effect on you? What is the matter? And then when your mom, the mom character, I was like. You know what? Don't give her the trust fund. She has to realize what's happening. I was literally shouting at the laptop. I love I was it. Watching the movie. But I didn't like her until <clears throat> I realized that the one very sensible fear she had was doing this alone is going to be hard. Mm-hmm. So I'm mm-hmm. going to try and corral other people, <laughs> my mm-hmm. parents, my, you know, my it's your sister you go to visit, right? Jess goes to mm-hmm, visit her sister. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Go back to the couple who said we want nothing to do with this and be like, yeah, maybe you should get another job in another firm. He's like, huh? Like that was it. I'm like, she's everything in her body and her mind is telling her I need help because this is, I can't do it alone. I thought, yeah, there you go. Now we've opened the window. Now I can relax because I now feel like, the yeah, because it's like <laughs> open the window, open, you can't open the door. That was too hard for you. So open the window. And I think it's a very good thing, as you said, for young women, especially, you know, women of color, to understand that there's so many things we will agree to, and it will seem like we are the most powerful and benign creatures. 
<sighs> we need to Darn. give up wanting to do that and just be selfish and to ourselves. Well, That's I fine. just, I, I really but feel I don't like... think that we have that option that easily, you know? Well, no, we don't. We, a lot of times we don't. I feel like, especially, I can only speak for black Americans because, you know, this is where I reside, but you know, there's this thing where it's like, oh, black women saved us again. Like, oh, we, you know, Stacey Abrams got it. Thank God. Like we got Joe Biden or whatever. And I'm like, listen, y'all, like we, we are not saving you. It is not our job to save you. We are not the saviors of the earth. We are not the ones to rely on all of the time. This is not healthy and it does not allow us to breathe and be human and make mistakes and mess up. It it doesn't allow that. It doesn't, it, we do, but it doesn't allow the breath of that. Um, and so I think that also ties in with like this likability thing. I think like to be, to be wide about it, like people who identify as female, a lot of times we're subjected to this, like this insane patriarchy, which makes us feel like, okay, in order to survive, I have to be liked in order to survive. I have to, let me just send this email with this like smiley face or this like, Little or let me exclamation point or or let me like pass by in the street and give this man some like wide berth for my safety. You know, it's it's always like a, a closing in of self. And it's really, really interesting to see her. I don't like Jess in the beginning of the movie. Good. Honestly, um, because because she's doing this. Yeah. And it's some and the only reason I don't like it. Um, and it's not to say I don't like people who feel like they have to do this because I really understand it. I don't like it because it's showing a mirror to a self that I have said goodbye to or that I'm, you know, currently being like, all right, that has to, she has to sit down. Like mm-hmm. The real me has to mm-hmm. come forward. Mm-hmm. And so because that mirror is so clear, I'm like, ah, oh, get it away from me. Like, no, no more yeah, acquiescing, yeah, yeah. no more saying yes, yes, yes. You actually have, there is power in no. There is power in being in your body. There is power in saying, okay, yes, I would love to do this for you. Let's communicate about it. So the more that she steps into herself, the more I'm like, okay, like I respect this person. I may not mm. respect the way you're going about it, mm. you know, mm. but I can respect that you've actually found a voice. Um, and so that was really interesting for me as the person playing her. It's like, okay, well, what parts of you are you familiar with this? Like people pleasing, like, okay, let's just, let's, let's do this. Like what, what part of that is familiar and why don't you like that? You know? Um, yeah. And it's taken yeah. to the nth level where you're like, I have a baby for you. Yeah. Like, I love all of my friends and I will not do that. <laughs> no, of course not. I mean, I mean, I barely wanted to give the baby to my husband. I was like, it's my baby. I mean, well, whatever. There's a reason why, you know, it's like, I definitely have criticism of the sort of world of surrogacy in New York, the stuff I was saying about mm. class, but... You know, it's also cool, I, and really I, crazy, beautiful. It's so beautiful to give yes, it to someone. It's course. so beautiful, so and, gracious. And there's reasons why they have their conventions, yes. like you know, using a different egg than the um, the, the surrogate and the egg donor being different people, and um, you know, the, they, they only they only will consider someone, yeah, if, if they yeah. have a child that they're raising from before, and they you know they do these intense evaluations, and so it's. You know, there, in a way, the film, I think, supports like, OK, there's a reason why yeah. there are some of those conventions yes, that just yes, doesn't yes, exactly. uh, apply you can't to. can't just go about this really nilly. I, yeah. I love what you said, Sindhu. And I because the people who love Jess in the beginning when she's being fully obsequious and then don't like her when she's putting up boundaries and speaking her mind. Those are the people that I don't trust, you know? No, like, it's the other we, way around, We did not man. really get it. I yeah, liked exactly. her throughout. I understood her throughout. But, you know, I'm known to have the patience of a saint. Uh, Jeremy, yeah. 
she is. Yeah, I'm just, I mean, it's what it's all people say about me, I assume. I, I don't know, I'm not there when they're talking about me, but I assume it's all the time. Uh, Jeremy, is there anything you would like to say before we finish up about this film or about why you would like the audience to go see it? I mean, as much as there's all this heavy stuff in the film that I hope is thought-provoking, it's also an entertaining film, I think. I think because the actors, like Jasmine and the, I think the whole ensemble, are they're incredible sort of New York theater actors that I think they're amazing. And, you know, there's moments that I hope are also funny occasionally um, it, oh, you yeah. know, in a very sort of character-driven way. Mm-hmm. It's so funny in some places, like when they're having <laughs> brunch with Bridget and um, she's asking her if she's happy and she's like, who, me? <laughs> I'm like, this is funny. And then later, Jess says to the two of them, well, Bridget seemed happy. I started laughing out loud. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> it's so funny, but it's so well observed. Jess is really trying to convince mm-hmm. herself that this is going to be great. Yeah. And it's so hilarious, but in a dark way. Bridget's literally on the verge of throwing herself out the window. And, and Jess is like, I thought she was fine. She's great. Like, oh, my yeah. God. Brooke Bloom is like one of our treasures. And I, I love her. She's an incredible, incredible Great actress. actress. It's great a fantastic actress. cast. It's wonderful. It's, um, and it's, it's very pacey as well. You know, a lot of independent yeah. films, it's they're just, sort of just like lots of prolonged shots of people walking down streets and stuff. This really cracks along. It's like... You know, you you get into the middle of every scene. There's no what my husband calls shoe leather. He has a film criticism podcast about uh, called Best Pick about the best picture winners, um, and he talks about shoe leather, which in the 70s there was a lot of shoe leather. I.e., you see Robert Redford's shoes get out of the car, walk into the bank, mm-hmm. walk to the bank, walk to the bank counter, say, "I'd like to deposit this check." The teller goes away, comes back. Films tend to be pacier than that now. You just cut to them in the bank. Uh, there's not a lot of looking at people's shoe leather. And Tom said, this is very light on shoe leather for an independent film, isn't it? I was like, yeah, they're just cracking on and cracking in and getting to really the good. getting to the important stuff. We both thought it was a fantastic film. And really it's good. just, I think, conversations feminists should be having around mm. new ways of creating families that yeah. we've never been able to have before just because we didn't have the technology or the societal structures that would support it five stars from me um must Thank watch so much. must watch now please really good yes please watch it it's so good it's, it's so, so good. good and you will watch the ending i mean the great thing about sending not watch not seeing the ending is she couldn't give this the ultimate spoiler i feel like we've we've said too much if there's anything if you want us to take out bits if we've said yeah. too much no and i, I mean, mean i see- for any for anyone who listens to me on this podcast or any other podcast, you should know that it's the kind of movie that lands in my email and I'm like, the surrogate, oh, please. Ugh. It's going to be some, ugh, there's going to be a, there's going to be a dilemma. Ugh. I was like so down on it. I'm not even going to lie. I was like, oh, there's yeah. going to be some dilemma and blah, blah, blah. And I can't even. And then I we just. We are the same. We are the same. I literally, watcher. I was like, I can't believe it. But you know, I was like, I've said to Deborah, I'm going to do it. Fine. And then I started watching it and I was, I cared about the characters. And Jeremy, that is a real testament to the writing. From the moment it started, I was like, oh, oh, oh. And it's not like because I had such strong anti-Jess feelings at the beginning, I didn't care about the others. You know, and I think that is what has surprised me the most is like, it's about choice for me. The surrogacy is the platform you're using, but it's about choice. And it's about choice when we have so much. Mm. But we also, some of us have so little and that friction 
and then you put a baby in the middle. Great. Yeah. Like honestly, yeah, I was like, okay. So from thank you I have so to, much. No, but it's not a movie. I would have been like, oh, let's go watch this and be like, oh, let's watch Law I mean, and Order. SVU. Basically, low put on the poster. Put on the poster. I would have avoided this by the plague, but I was forced to watch it. And do you know what? <laughs> It got me. It got me. Sinduvi. Vastly exceeded my very low expectations. <laughs> exactly. what, wasn't far. just another flick about dumb choices. <laughs> so, you know, like kind of I think that, wow, well, come on, young people making sin. It's honestly, I was, I had the most, I'm ashamed. I'm not even that ashamed. I'm just telling you the truth. It's a great movie. So mm. everyone who's listening to this, please go watch it. I swear to God, you are not going to ever think it. you're going to Where can right people thing. watch it? Where can people watch it? Yeah. Where? It's going to be in cinemas July 9th. In the UK. And so, you know, check your local listings. If you're in the US or, or Canada, it, it's available on Stars um, and also on iTunes. You can rent it, Vimeo, you can rent it. Um, and um, can British people rent it on iTunes? No, not yet. Just, no, not yet. I mean, and, and you're getting, you know, the, the sort of first theatrical run that we've had. So, I, you know, I'm planning to come. And if I'm allowed to leave my hotel room, <laughs> then it'll be the first uh, oh, time that I will have seen it with any audience. You are. We let anyone out of their hotel room here. It's not Australia. We just, the That's government just goes. part of maybe, quarantine. Um, the government just goes, <laughs> if you want to stay in your hotel room, that'd be charming. But I mean, we don't want to stop you taking in the sights and sounds of London. If you'd well, like to go you know, for the London Eye and trap yourself day. in a box with oh, yeah. 27 strangers, say. maskless. Also, we wouldn't want to stop you. Not with our British temperament for the apology. That's our full policy. So honestly, you're all good. Just get double vaxxed. Okay. Get double vaxxed. Yeah, I already am. And uh, I'll just say that I'm, you know, quarantining at, at Curzon. Oh, yeah. It's going to be at Curzon <laughs> Cinema? We, we actually don't know, but that's okay, just, I'm trying to impress you with we hope how so. well I know, you know, the local... No, but Curzon London Cinema is so elegant. This is a very Curzon Cinema kind of movie, It's right? such a Curzon. It's such, such a Curzon Cinema But listen, kind of hey, if, we, if you And if you, you can do drink champagne over, at Curzon Cinema, so I don't even know why we go anywhere else. If you do come over and you have a screening at the Curzon or elsewhere, let us know and we'll put it out to all the guilty feminists. And maybe if you're doing a Q&A or something, we'll all come along to that night. Yeah, maybe we can have breakfast or something. I'd love to meet you guys in person. Absolutely. No, no, no pressure. But, but, Are you going to come too, Jasmine? Oh, I will be here. I will be here in Brooklyn. Oh, um, okay. No, it's just Jeremy. So okay. any well, questions you have I'll for have him, I'll have to come to Brooklyn. <laughs> Please do. I mean, Please do. You'll see all of the spots and, where and, we filmed. And <laughs> when, when does Starstruck become available on HBO Max? Because it's it not is, out yet. It is. In the, oh, it is it now. Is, it is out. Because someone in out. LA wrote to be... me and said, I saw you in that you were very funny while you were firing her. I'm like, I know. I'm good at that. I, I just put her. that on my list, too. I Oh, my God. I have to watch it tonight. I just I got like a this big cameo, but it. it was such a fun part. It, it was, was a really fun part. Sinterview was actually in my independent film, which is called yes, Say My Name. Yes, it was Inspector Raj. It's the first time I'd ever acted in front of a camera ever in my life. She played a police detective. Remember okay. that was so much. Deb gave me my big acting break. Yeah. You do. You're on everything acts. now. She's constantly on everything now. I'm constant on everything. I'm you not feel a, good? I love that show. Feel good. I mean, but I mean, come on. They were like, hmm, Karen, she's like a pathological liar in NA. I'm like, I'll just channel my mom and sister. I'm good. I got it, man. Wow. And it was so great. Was wow. So great. But I loved Karen because she was totally convinced that she wouldn't be found out and she, She's like, I've done all the drugs, like the cone-shaped yeah, ones. Yeah. <laughs> right. Can I, can I read one more quote that I've written down and you guys can edit it out? Just want to share? No, we won't, I hope. We won't edit read it, it out. Read it. So there's a podcast called The Lucky Few that I love. 
Um, mm. It's hosted by a few people, including Heather Avis, um, who's amazing. There's actually a little, there's a moment in the film when Jess is listening to a podcast and it's an actual episode of, of The Lucky Few. So I highly recommend people seek that out. But um, Heather has three children that she's adopted, two of which have Down syndrome. And this is on the issue of kind of what we've been talking about of the laws in, in the U.S., and she says, when this was on the po- a recent episode of the podcast, she says, when someone talks to me and they're like all up in arms saying like, we're fighting for the unborn who have Down syndrome, that really means very little to me if they're not fighting for the born who have Down syndrome. What are you doing right now for my kids who are alive? And the answer is usually nothing. Um, so I feel like that kind of says so much in terms of this conversation. Mm-hmm. Oh, so yeah. when the right wingers in America go, oh, but we're fighting for Down exactly. syndrome, you're not, you're fighting to take autonomy away from women. That is not to say right. that These everybody are... who is fighting against terminating fetuses who may turn into babies that have Down syndrome is in that situation. There are some parents of children with Down syndrome that feel that way very strongly. But when it's this right-wing American, let's make laws, let's make laws, let's make laws, it's generally not about that. So that's a great... Yeah, and these two, you can support, you know, increased amount of respect for the humanity of people with Down syndrome, and you can um, fully support... A woman's right to choose. Well, and and beyond that, just, you know, unrestricted access to abortion. I agree. I agree. I think law is not choice. Mm. So the moment you start legislating, you can shut up, please. I mean, about our bodies. Cindy, do you have anything to plug? I have a tour coming up, and it um, starts 11th of September, and the tickets are available. The tour is called Alphabet. It's going all over the UK. Hopefully, it's coming to a theater near you uh, or a hall or another kind of venue, you know. Um, please go to my website, sindhuvi.com, and look at the tickets, and not just look at them. Please buy them, and then come and we shall Alphabet together. Wonderful. Go see Cindy's show. It's going to be remarkable. Thank you so much, Cindy V, for joining us as always. Thank you. Thank you so much to our incredible guests, Jeremy and Jasmine. Woo! Woo, 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 woo. Thank you so much. Go and see The Surrogate, um, which is going to be out in cinema soon. And follow our socials to see if there's a Q&A with Jeremy anywhere that we can come to. And he's invited everyone out for breakfast. So I'm super excited. Got a lot of listeners. So it's going to be a big breakfast. Grace Petrie, do you have a suitable song? As our house band, <laughs> do you have a song about? Do you know what this this gets this gets nichier and nichier, um, and you know we've really I've I've been very fortunate to be asked to to uh, be a musical guest on so many episodes of the Guilty Feminist, and uh, and I've really. Um, I've really plundered my back catalogue, haven't I, for all of the uh, relevance that I can possibly Is that what the young people are calling it now, plundering the back (laughs) catalogue? Don't ask me, mate, I'm 33. Um, uh, But, well, I was was thinking, so I I haven't seen the film and, and my God, I'm going to, just the moment that it comes out in the cinema here, I'll be be straight there. Um, But I was... uh, 
that was such a fascinating conversation to be listening to and um and yeah there's just so much that you guys said that's so wonderful i don't have a specific song about the specific uh circumstance of a um uh the the characters in this film that you described because it's even though i've written a lot of uh stuff for this podcast i think that's that's a, a little bit beyond my even my niche uh <laughs> songwriting ability but uh but i th- i just thought there was so much really interesting stuff there about I mean I know we talk about this a lot on the podcast but the kind of solidarity between communities which is so uh, needed at the moment and I thought that that idea Jeremy that you were talking about about sort of uh, how insidious it is when the people who oppress us will kind of use setting up to uh, sort of uh, using air quotes again kind of conflicting ideas to sort of try and keep uh, you know groups that are oppressed by as you say basically the sort of white uh, male patriarchy it's pride month at the moment and I wanted to sing this song at pride month because at the moment we're experiencing at the moment uh, in the UK uh, a sort of coordinated backlash against um, Stonewall which is an organisation set up it's a LGBTQ plus rights group and at the moment there's a sort of coordinated effort to try and sort of discredit it because it wasn't always like a trans rights organisation as well it sort of became a trans rights organisation as well about seven or eight years ago I believe and there's been a lot of transphobic backlash to that in the UK and that because we have an incredibly right-wing government which is becoming more and more uh, authoritarian that uh, backlash is sort of starting to really take a hold in a lot of uh, scary ways. Uh, and I was just thinking that, you know, as somebody who is a, a butch lesbian, who kind of, I, I, a lot of the times that I see a lot of transphobic talking points, they are sort of people kind of saying, well, you know, we're just so worried about butch lesbians and we're so worried about the butch lesbian erasure. And, you know, that quote that you read at the end there, Jeremy, just like it so kind of resonates for me because it's a lot of the same people who have kind of oppressed butch lesbians, you know, for since the dawn of time, now suddenly rushing to the defence of butch lesbians when it is an excuse to marginalise another group. Um, So I thought that was very uh, interesting. So if it's cool, I'm going to sing a song that I wrote um, about Pride. It's actually called Pride. And I wrote it a few years ago after the Pulse nightclub uh, shooting in, in Orlando. And and I think it's uh, it's like a song that I like to sing around this time of year. But I think kind of, yeah, it's certainly in the UK, like more than ever, it really feels like uh, we need uh, solidarity across the whole, across the whole queer rainbow. Um, because at the end of the day, we are... None of us free if all of us are not free. So, And I just want to say there's a Trans Lives Matter sign in Jess's bedroom, I noticed, Amazing. in the movie. Mm. And I just saw today on Twitter somebody saying, but it's natural to be gay. It's not natural to be trans. And I was like... It's natural to be gay. Yeah, Since yeah. when? I mean, a few decades what ago, a modern what was idea. always said about gay people? Unnatural. Mm. It was yeah. always said. And it's like you, yeah. you, you win one fight and then that fight is used as a weapon to turn on the next vulnerable group. And the absolutely, next group. absolutely. And, in exact, and by exactly the same token, um, you know, uh, already some of the kind of more hard right-wing members of the Conservative Party are using the, what they see as the sort of legitimization of transphobia as a way of saying, well, you know, also it's it's high time that these, these gays, you know, kind of got back in their box as well. And that's, you know, that was always going to be the way it was going to be, you know. Um, so, yeah, this song is uh, called Pride and it goes this. Thank you. 
this platform No one's stopping me to sing But there's a multitude of sins They can hide behind your hashtag Tell me again how love wins Well, there's nothing new about this rage It's a war that's always waged Like how no one bats an eye That when 50 of us die in it It doesn't even make the Daily Mail front page Well, sometimes it's like an uphill climb Yes, sometimes it's like an uphill climb But I'm right by your side And that's what we call to everybody celebrating Pride this month. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much, the incredible Grace Petrie. You have been listening to The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis-White, guest co-host Cindy V, and our very special guests, Jeremy Hirsch and Jasmine Batchelor, with music from Grace Petrie. The Guilty Feminist theme tune was composed by Mark Hodge and produced by Nick Sheldon. The producer was Tom Zelinski from the Spontaneity Shop. Thanks to Rachel Kraft and Gina DCO and everyone who made this episode happen, as well as all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit guiltyfeminist.com. <laughs> 
I'm a feminist, but I wish I'd saved my hymen for Don Draper. This is wrong now. This is just getting horrible. We don't is, normally say hymen so much. This is what we mean by so stuff much. that gets edited out, you guys. This, this is, is that stuff, by the way. <laughs> so normally we would do this in a theatre uh, for yeah. a while and have some stand-up comedy. Then we'd bring you on. So just so you get the picture. Uh, so we're going to cut straight to our guest today. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Okay. 